Okay, is that better now? Yeah. It helps to turn it on. Um, tonight I want to pick up uh, where Sylvia left off last night, which you may or may not remember. <laughs> See, we could say anything, right? The next night, nobody remembers. Um, which is beginning to talk about, she's talking about this state of aversion or anger, or being with that difficult, that difficult state. And tonight I want to talk specifically about, in some detail, investigating together these various states of heart and mind that get lumped together under the big title of aversion. The word in Pali, I like the Pali word just because it's broader and doesn't have all the same limiting connotations we have on a version in English. The Pali word is dosa, and it covers a wide range of mental states which have in common what we would call a version, pulling back from the experience. So I'll just read you a few of them. Hatred, aversion, ill will, irritation, boredom, resistance, denial, impatience, annoyance, anger, Rage, guilt, dislike, depression, sorrow, regret, violence, aggression, cruelty, fear, anxiety, terror, self-judging, self-hatred. That's, I'm sure, not the whole list. But it's amazing, isn't it? What a range, and you can um, imagine, you can feel the underlying similarity, which in case you can, I'll talk about it. But, um, but what's very, very important in exploring this aspect of our experience is that we hold it in the larger context of the non-diluted heart and mind that we hold the exploration, that we explore the state of heart and mind from the understanding of truth rather than from the perspective of identification and self-referencing. Because I think one of the great difficulties many of us have in really understanding these states of heart and mind and seeing for ourselves how they continue our suffering, one of the difficulties is that we get so easily identified with them that by even acknowledging their presence, we already feel 10 times worse about ourselves just because they're there. And so, of course, we don't even want to look at them. And we just get further and further from the truth. So, okay. So I think it's really important as we begin looking carefully, exploring, to have a willingness to explore these experiences when they arise for you, to see that it's not personal. It's not who I am. It's not who you are. That aversion, any of these states, arise due to habitual conditioning. If we can see that and not identify so strongly, then we can begin to discover how aversion functions to obstruct our uh, connectedness to inner peace, 
our connectedness to wholeness, to integrity of being, how it obstructs joy and connectedness. So aversion, it's not just that you're a bad person because you have a lot of anger that comes up. It arises due to lawful conditionings, the root conditioning being ignorance. Aversion arises because we do not know things, we do not know ourselves in their true nature in the moment that aversion arises. We're not understanding or seeing clearly. Because of that not seeing clearly, aversion comes. And the first thing that I think we don't understand fully in a moment when we get lost in any of these states of aversion is actually the first noble truth. That all of our struggle with these states of anger, fear, ill will, self-judgment, basically stem from um, our not fully opening to and integrating the fact of what the Buddha stated in his first noble truth. There is unsatisfactoriness in this life, in this mind and body. Sylvia talked about it last night. It's not all unsatisfactory, luckily, but we think it shouldn't be any unsatisfactory. And it's not just, you know, individually one or two of us have that impression, but everybody else is, is clued in to how things are. But really, broadly, personally, in our families, in our society, we all know this, so I'm not going to talk about it much, but just to realize that our, our learned response to levels of sickness, old age, disease, being separated from those we love or from what we want, not getting what we want, basically, having to hang out with what we don't want. And I must say, putting 150 people together in a room all day is a great way to begin to explore what it's like to be together with what you don't want and to be separated from what you want. You're sitting here, you can either be exploring the truth of the first noble truth, or we can be going with our normal habits, which are either, this isn't happening, if I don't pay attention, it won't, it won't keep happening, or it's a mistake that it's happening, and if I get angry enough or figure out the right thing, I can fix it. Or it's my fault that it's happening because I'm a loser or I'm not spiritual enough or whatever suffering comes up. And it's not just sitting here, you know, when you're sick, when something really hard happens in your life. It's really easy to either deny or to turn it inward into some kind of self-blame or self-judgment. And that's in big things, it's in little things. Just this society seems to hold underlying our relationship to the first noble truth, there's the unspoken assumption that if we get it right, you know, suffering's gonna stop. Isn't that really, if you're really honest with yourself, don't you think if you practice right, nothing unpleasant's gonna happen anymore? <laughs> I catch myself in that all the time. And so then the unpleasant, now not the extra suffering of hating and judging, but the unpleasant experience itself becomes a sign that there's something wrong with us. 
there's something wrong with the world. This is really when we're not deeply understanding the first noble truth. That no matter how well we understand the nature of things, no matter how good we are, sometimes bad things happen. And that's just the way it is. So all of our work, so to speak, with any of these forms of aversion, aversion arises in the first place because in that moment we're confronted with something unpleasant and there's that underlying tendency that if I can get away from it, everything will be okay. If I can deny it, everything will be okay. And of course, deeply somewhere, we know that's not true. It's just that we don't really know how to meet unpleasant experience wholeheartedly, open-heartedly, with kind awareness, so that in that moment that unpleasant experience can be our access to freedom. It doesn't have to only be pleasant, but we really don't know how to do it. But somewhere in us, I feel, both personally and culturally, that ability to be open-hearted and courageous in the face of suffering inspires us enormously. Doesn't it like when you, for me, I know all through history or writers that I'm drawn to or historical figures I'm drawn to are most often people who have in some way or or other been able to be in the midst of suffering I couldn't even begin to comprehend from my life and still had the greatness of heart to be present, to be uh, a courageous witness for society in the midst of us, in the midst of the suffering, to be open to it without, in fact, not without, only without losing the beauty, but to see that the suffering, the opening to suffering itself is our access to truth. So like, I think it was Jack who was quoting Martin Luther King the other night, just as an example, incredibly inspiring. Or this woman, I've read this before, this woman named Eddie Hillisum, who was uh, in the concentration camps in World War II, a Dutch woman, who just naturally, she wrote diaries, she died in the concentration camps, who naturally had this ability. And I think it touches us so deeply because it awakens that potential in ourselves. She says, it is possible to suffer with dignity and without. I mean, most of us in the West don't understand the art of suffering and experience a thousand fears instead. We cease to be alive, being full of fear, bitterness, hatred, and despair. God knows it's only too easy to understand why. I'm in Poland every day on the battlefields, if that's what one can call them. I often see visions of poisonous green smoke. I am with the hungry, with the ill-treated, and the dying every day but I am also with the jasmine and with that piece of sky beyond my window. There's room for everything in a single life. I sometimes bow my head under the great burden that weighs down on me, but even as I bow my head, I also feel the need almost mechanically to fold my hands. And so I can sit for hours and know everything and bear everything and grow stronger in the bearing of it, and at the same time feel sure 
that life is beautiful and worth living and meaningful. Somewhere, I, I just really trust that even if we don't know it consciously, we know that potential for such open-hearted presence in the face of seemingly unbearable suffering and conflict is the point of real liberation of heart, the point of real freedom. I mean, I, none of you would be sitting here hours on end if somewhere there wasn't that understanding. <clears throat> but I think it's real easy for us to forget. And in the forgetting, we come back into our old habits, which is that if I can get away from this unpleasant thing, then I'll really be happy. And then we get caught in the cycle of judging when the natural habit of aversion comes up. So we have to begin by understanding. Joe Beck, our misery stems from the misconception that we are separate. Certainly it looks as though I am separate from other people and all other phenomena. As long as we think we're separate, we're going to suffer. We feel we have to defend ourselves. We have to find something in the world that will make us happy. The response to unpleasant of aversion arises exactly from this misconception that I'm separate, that somehow I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant or difficult experience. I mean, we don't think it out so clearly, but that's what's going on. And in fact, what happens is that the trying to hold ourselves separate in trying to achieve happiness that way, we're actually creating in that holding ourselves separate the sense of separation, that needing to defend, that fear that I might have to be united with what is difficult. So it's a cycle. From the misconception of thinking we are separate, we act in a way that continues the experience of separation and loneliness and alienation. The Buddha said, lust, lust meaning is that thirst, that driven desire, hate, delusion, each of these is a matter of measurement. What he mean by that, lust or hate or delusion in the moment that it's arising in the mind or heart, imposes a sense of limitation, a sense of restriction to the heart and mind, when in actuality, the heart, the mind, is limitless, boundless. Explore this just in your times here. Those moments, the desert's great as a way to approach that sense of the limitless heart and mind, the boundless, infinitely spacious heart and mind. So if you're just walking in the desert, just present, nothing special, lifting the foot, seeing the choya, feeling the breath, smelling whatever, just a step. Notice in that there isn't a sense of limitation or restriction. You're not necessarily thinking, oh, incredible, the heart and mind is limitless, boundless. But if you were to bring in your attention, that would be the experience. And the moment 
that wanting something comes up or not liking something comes up, there's a sense of limits, of walls, of restrictions coming in. So our work is in learning to understand, not to hate aversion or fear or anger, which is, I think, what we often fall into, but in really being willing to meet it wholeheartedly so that we can understand the truth of who we are. And this requires, I think, first an acceptance of the fact of any of these forms of aversion when they arise in our experience. And I don't know if I can overemphasize this, because I mean, we say this all the time, but it's really kind of hard to do. And I know for myself in the last few years, there was a period when something in my um, patterning shifted. And I really started to accept the fact that aversion frequently arises in my mind, that it's a very strongly ingrained habit and not who I was. It got to be actually very amusing. I amuse myself a lot with the way, you know, aversive thoughts come up. I don't know if I amuse anyone else with it. That's another thing. But to be able to actually be okay with it when it comes up in your experience, that doesn't mean acting on it. I'm talking about just really seeing and being okay with these states when they come up. It's amazingly freeing because we're no longer locked in this endless cycle of fighting. And to do this, we need the tools of mindfulness, the tools of acceptance, the willingness to do just the opposite of what everything in us is screaming we need to do, which is instead of turning away from the unpleasantness, instead of turning away from our fear and anger, instead of trying to pretend we don't feel it or act it out, it means we just turn fully into it, knowing that there is the place of peace and rest. It's, it's counterintuitive and it's a little hard to do. Like a good friend of mine was telling me how, um, she's kind of a big lady, and she's telling me how her two grown sons, when they go somewhere where there are big waves at a beach, are always trying to tell her how when the huge wave is coming, you need to turn around and just dive right into it, and you just go right under it, no problem. And intellectually, she said, I know this, but I've only ever been able to do it once. Every other time, as soon as I see it coming, I just turn and run, and it clobbers me, you know, just I roll all over, and they're screaming, dive into it, dive into it. I just can't do it. It's sort of like that. We turn and run, and we're clobbered. Or we just say, no, this isn't happening. It's not coming, you know, and I'll just sit here, and it'll go away, and wham, you know. The next thing we know, what started as a minor irritation turns into some kind of murderous rage, and we don't know how it happened. So it begins by really accepting that in our normal, as the Buddha said, we, we uneducated worldlings, we normal, not completely awakened beings. For us, aversion, fear, aggression, irritation, that response to the unpleasant, it's part of life. It's part of our conditioning. It's part of the conditioning of every culture. And by denying it or hating ourselves for it, we're just adding more fear and aversion on top of it. And sometimes in a spiritual practice, 
I find it's easy to use the ideals, you know, that, for instance, freedom means the complete uprooting of greed, hatred, and aversion. And then subtly, every time greed or hatred arises, there's this subtle thing in the background, I'm blowing it. If I were really spiritual, I wouldn't be having this reaction now. And it's really hard then to let it in. Just as an experiment, I want to this is from Payment Chodron, and it's something I often read because I find it very inspiring. Just listen a minute. She talks about the, every day we could think about the aggression all over the world. All over the world, everybody always strikes out at the enemy, and the pain escalates forever. Every day we could reflect on this and ask ourselves Am I going to add to the aggression in the world? Every day, at the moment when things get edgy, we can just ask ourselves, am I going to practice peace or am I going to war? Now, in one way, I find that a wonderful and really helpful idea. When I have enough awareness that I notice I'm edgy and I notice aggression is about to come up and I have a choice, it's a wonderful reflection. You know, do I want to add to the aggression in the world? But I don't know, did any of you have a feeling of, gee, so here today I was so furious at that person sitting nearby doing that, and all I was doing was adding to the aggression in the world. That isn't why I came here. It's another proof that by being here and allowing these thoughts to come up, I'm adding to the aggression in the world. I'm creating bad karma. I'm a bad person. It's not so easy to just sit there and feel the shoot of aversion and say, oh, yeah, that's aversion. That's anger. That's fear. So we have to begin by deeply accepting that it's a part of life. Although every culture deals with it differently, most of the ways we deal in the culture are coping mechanisms. Keep it kind of the aggression kind of under the rug, you know, ways to contain it in the culture. Now, I mean, I think that's a good idea. It's better we should cope with it than we just all run amok. But there's also the potential for understanding it. And the understanding is what liberates us, what frees our heart from the grip of fear and aversion. So we have to start first by really looking at it. This is just, I just read this in the newspaper from Tokyo. My intention, honest, was not to scar these Japanese kids for life. I just wanted to give them a fun game to play. It was the fifth birthday party last year for my son Gregory, and he had invited all his Japanese friends over from the Tokyo kindergarten that he attended. My wife and I explained the rules of musical chairs, and we started the music. My, it was not so awful for the Japanese boys. They managed to fight for seats, albeit a bit lamely, but the girls were at sea. The first time I stopped the music, Gregory's five-year-old girlfriend, Chitos-chan, was next to him, right in front of a chair. But she stood politely and waited for him to be seated first. <laughs> so Gregory scrambled into her seat, and Chitos-chan beamed proudly at her own good manners. Then I walked over and told her she had just lost the game. <laughs> she gazed up at me, her eyes full of shocked disbelief looking like Bambi might after a discussion of venison burgers. <laughs> 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 
You mean I lose because I'm polite? Cheetos Chan's eyes asked. You mean the point of the game is to be rude? <laughs> It's true, huh? He says, I guess that is the point. <laughs> and he just goes on to reflect about the difference between the values of American and Japanese culture. And that in Japan, he said, how else could a country the size of California with 125 million people packed into it? That's half of the U.S. in California. How else could they maintain it? You know, so he says, maybe that's one reason that、um, Japan has few armed robbers, but also so few entrepreneurs. The American emphasis on winning may help explain why the United States consistently racks up Olympic gold medals. But also why its hockey players trashed their rooms in Nagano when they lost. But every culture it comes out in, here at the end. Little Cheetos Chan, while she may be polite, but shortly after the game of musical chairs, she and her friend Naoko Chan got into an argument over a party favor. Cheetos Chan slugged Naoko Chan in the mouth and grabbed the toy. <laughs> It's there, you know.、It's, it comes out one way or the other, however, our culture tries to contain it. So we need the culture, but the point of resting at ease is that we really understand and can be there in the middle of losing the toy, you know, or losing the game, or losing our best friend. And we can be there in that uncertainty and not lose our peace. So let's begin by actually exploring the experience of any of these forms of aversion when they arise. It always, whenever you notice a moment of aversion, irritation, fear, in the moment of its arising, it's always arising as a response to some, one of the six sense experiences that's happening here and now. We might not recognize it. But there's an unpleasant sound and a moment of irritation, or maybe there's an unpleasant memory and a stab of fear, or an unpleasant physical sensation and a moment of irritation or anger or terror. Even when we're furious, furious at something that happened 10 years ago, it was still triggered by a sense experience arising in this moment. The memory of 10 years ago is a thought. Arising in this moment. We, of course, won't always be able to see that. But one of the great things about these retreats is you can take the little things and explore how it works because it works just the same in the big things. So, in that moment of an unpleasant sound arising, and we don't like it, there's aversion or irritation or anger, what's your actual experience? Tune into the reactive experience. How does it function? It's as if internally what I feel, but look for yourself. It's almost physical as all the attention, the mind, the heart almost physically shrinks back away from that experience, like really makes a gap. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to recognize it. We don't want to know it. Really trying to hold ourselves separate. And into that gap, because wherever there's a gap, the attention isn't connected. It's as if somehow that leaves room for all kinds of really fascinating stuff to come up. And since you're seeing it through the, the filter of aversion at that moment, what'll come up is all the stories about it, the interpretations, more reaction, maybe self judgment. 
and a whole cycle. And what the what's actually happening is that we don't really know what the particular experience is that's triggering it because we're not connected with our attention. So, I mean, we give this instruction all the time, something simple and repetitive like a sound in the hall that you can keep going back to. When you find you're an enormous reaction, there's thoughts and feelings and emotions and they're spinning and they just seem to cycle more and more and more until pretty soon that person who's making that noise is somewhere equivalent to the great tyrants of the world as far as their insensitivity and and the amount of suffering that they're creating. We just project everything into them, followed by deep sense of unworthiness for having had such a horrible thought. And then we turn the whole mess back on ourselves. And we never actually meet the sound, which is just a poor little sound arising in experience, not really doing anything, and we're gone. So this can go on for hours, hours, days, weeks. The, it's what's really interesting to observe about the quality of both anger and fear. Those are sort of the two sides of aversion, is how in one moment of its arising, Dan Goldman talks about this in his book, Emotional Intelligence, how the physiological effects of anger, and I experience it the same for fear, are really quite strong. You know, if you have a moment of of not liking something, of anger, you really feel it in your body. In fact, if you watch over time, it leaves a real residue. Even when your mind doesn't feel angry anymore, the body is still holding on to it. Oh, this is really buzzing. Can you do anything? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> and it leaves this real residue. And what happens is the residue itself is unpleasant. And so before it's quite gone away, even though the mind might be calm again, the next unpleasant thing that arises, just the slightest aversion triggers that residue didn't really go away and so the the physical reaction is even stronger and so it can be that what starts is a very mild irritation but we don't really bring awareness to it ends up so furious you know where just some little thing triggers you to such an extent that you explode and you're really surprised why did that happen this isn't because we didn't really notice the residue the physical residue building So without our mindfulness, it's really important to see how it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle. So the first line of understanding how aversion works is if it's something, really it helps if it's relatively mild, to see if you can notice what's the sense experience that's triggering this aversion or fear right now, and then you dive into the wave. You bring your attention right into that experience instead of trying to get away from it. And this is our place of clear seeing and peace. Everything in you will say, no, no, no. But if you really dive in, it's like, oh, hearing. You can do it with this buzz. (laughs) It starts to bug you. Instead of moving away and pretending it doesn't happen, go into it. It's just a buzz. We can do this all the time. Sometimes what happens 
is this, when Sylvia talked about a kind of grumpy mind, you know, and you're just going on all day and just grumbling about everything and every little thing that comes into experience, every sight, every person, you just have some really negative reaction. And you can't really psychologically figure out why. You know, you don't really know what's going on. This happens to me often. I've noticed on a retreat, one time I was doing walking meditation, and I felt really present. I was noticing all the mental experience, which was moving from mildly unpleasant to extreme self-judging to like running through a litany of everything wrong I ever did to anybody back to the third grade. And suddenly I kind of pulled back and said, what's going on here? And I noticed I wasn't paying any attention to my physical experience. And when I tuned in physically, there was really, it was a really mild pain in my toe. Really mild. But not noticing it. Every time I took a step, I was just like pushing it slightly out of the range of awareness. And so there was a slight aversion pulling away. Denial is a form of aversion going on. And so through that veil of aversion, all the thoughts that were arising were really kind of taking that color and turning into self-judgment. So I notice this a lot when I'm tired. I, I used to, when I get tired, get really annoyed and cranky and irritable at everything. It took me years to figure out that if I turn my attention to my body, it's really uncomfortable when I'm tired. It doesn't feel good. All I have to do is notice that. Oh, yes, unpleasant. And, oh, that's all that's happening. But because it's something that's going on sort of subliminally all day, whenever we kind of move away from it and get a little off balance, a little spaced out, the aversion of that comes in, we don't notice it, and we get involved in our reactions to something else. A friend of mine told me once after I was talking about this, he said, yeah, I tuned in and I said, I've been really in a nasty mood, and I saw that my sweatshirt was a little too tight. And that's all that was going on. I had worked up all these stories all day, and it just, my sweatshirt was a little tight. So sometimes when you find yourself getting into a state and you don't notice anything obvious, just open up a little bit. and What's happening now? Just tune in. It can be so minor. And without our awareness of it, it can turn into a really big thing. And then, of course, (laughs) there are plenty of times when either the anger, the aversion, or the fear is not minor. It doesn't just get triggered from some little sound or whatever it gets triggered by, forget it, you're never going to know because it comes rushing up in a huge wave of emotion. And sometimes that's the hardest for us to really accept, to be willing to be with. The sense of, I've been going along really quite mindful, quite aware or cultivating metta and suddenly from nowhere there's this wave of anger or self-loathing or aggression And it sometimes is really hard to just accept that as another impersonal cloud. So when it's strong like that, it's helpful just to move into the energy itself. The acceptance is so key because without it, we get back into that cycle of this shouldn't be happening, I shouldn't be doing this, and pretty soon we're way down the road. So I'll give you a personal example from about 45 minutes ago. (laughs) Thanks to... um, I think Franz deliberately planned this to give me something to talk about. <laughs> he didn't do anything wrong. I was out walking in the desert just before this. 
you know, really spacious, happy, open, peaceful, when we're no longer suppressing things. I think this is really key because a lot of our res- the way that we deal with fear and strong anger is to pretend we don't feel it, you know, and it doesn't come. So it'll come up in these rushes when we're really open and spacious and not in our normal mode of suppression. So I came back in in this really open, happy space. We started having a discussion about making travel plans for the future. That's really a great discussion to get into just before I'm going to go give a talk. And so within two minutes, now I want to do it this way, I want to do it this way. And I went, well, not even two minutes, ten seconds, from being really open and spacious to this huge uprush of we could call it aversion, or you could call it anger. <laughs> you could call it, I'm not getting what I want, or I might not get what I want in the future, and whoosh. And it's really amazing to just watch that come up. And, okay, so I didn't, the first second it came up, say, wow, isn't this amazing? You know, <laughs> I have to acknowledge it took a couple of minutes. And in that couple of minutes, you could really see how I mean, we both started, woo, like this, and then we both, okay, cool it. Because you could really see, you don't need to do this now. Cool it. But there's that residual burning ash going on in the body. So we say, cool it. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> start up again. Okay, cool it. We both stop. Then the other one, yeah, but in fact, you know, okay, really cool it. And then the recognition of it. I know years ago I would have piled on top of that a whole layer of, I can't believe you're still so infantile to get so upset about something like that. And just before I talk, and you were just so open, and now it's ruined, and you're never going to feel open again. And that ensures the fact that you don't feel open again. Believe me. Take it from me. You don't have to do that. And instead, I could see that starting. We could both see the tendency to want to keep going till one of us battered the other into submission. And we just, okay, you know, cool it. And he went out for a walk, and I just, like, stared at him for a while. <laughs> and I just started doing what I'm, what I'm suggesting you do. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that it works. <laughs> Pay attention. And I saw that actually, quite quickly, it went away from my mind. I didn't really stay in this really tight space. And it doesn't go away from the body nearly so quickly. So I could just feel the reverberations in my body and the tightness and the burning. So I just paid attention to that. And that's all it is. You know, just sensations in the body, tightness and burning. And as soon as I would just start spacing out, this is why the awareness, the being willingness to come and be with it, with kind awareness is so important. Not figuring out who's right or wrong or anything, but just being with the sensations, it's fine. As soon as I'd stop that and like kind of space out or drift back into the conversation or maybe this or that, whoosh, the whole thing was really ready to get triggered again, basically from the uncomfortable physical sensations. That's really what the aversion was too. Fascinating to watch. If you don't take it personally, it doesn't have to go down the road. We're not talking about being saints here, but you can really see, oh, this is what it is. It arises not in my control, and often in the most unexpected times, can I still bring in my awareness and the power of our willingness to just be present and see what's what is really quite liberating. So 
sometimes, I mentioned this in the last retreat, the strength of the anger of fear is way beyond any ability to just sit and notice the sensations. So then you need to move. Like I mentioned, stomping meditation. And quite a few people told me that was really helpful. You go out, you just let the energy of anger and fear move in your body. Stomping, stomping. Anger, anger. Really, just let it be. Acknowledge it. We don't need to suppress it in denial, and we don't need to stomp on somebody's face. We just need to acknowledge the energies there and let it move. We don't have to build a me story around it. It's not the being with the unpleasantness that's the suffering. It's not even the anger that's the suffering. It's that sense of coagulation of this is me, and there's something wrong with me. That's really what creates the alienation and separation. Anger or fear are just clouds that move through when we notice them. They're just another aspect of unsatisfactory experience of the first noble truth. When we make it me, my anger, my suffering, my self-judgment, then it's solid. Then we're in alienation and separation. So like Joko Beck says, can we, can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion and the uncertainty? So like that example, could I find in myself a willingness to rest in we didn't figure out what we're going to do and maybe I won't get what I want and just rest there? It's like, yeah, it's fine for the moment. It doesn't mean it won't come back. But can we rest there? It's really hard. We don't really like to rest in pain and unpleasant experience. We're really afraid of it. Are we afraid of even the thought of it? I've noticed in myself incredible lengths I will go to to avoid what I think will be in the future an unpleasant experience. Yeah, you might recognize occasionally we do that. I noticed I think it was last year. Well, this happens all the time. But there's a particular example. Uh, good, a really good friend who I don't see, haven't seen for years, wanted me to come and teach a weekend with him somewhere in Canada. And the only date was one that would have been incredibly squeezed in my schedule. I mean, it was it was really clear from an impersonal point of view that it was crazy to even think about it. You know, I would have just been made myself sick and exhausted. But it took me weeks to actually call and tell him I couldn't do it. Because every time I thought about it, the unpleasant thought of, oh, he's going to be mad at me, he's not going to like me, it's going to make him feel bad, that unpleasant thought, I'd pull back from it. I couldn't just be with it. And I got so afraid of the imagined unpleasantness of the experience of telling him that and having to experience him getting mad at me that I seriously considered, you know, never mind what it does to me, I'm going to go teach this retreat just so I don't have to call him up and hear him say, oh, I'm really disappointed. And finally, when I saw that, I thought, this is nuts. This is really nuts. I called him up. Of course, he was fine. You know, <laughs> I didn't really care. But I, so I was willing to, to, you know, make myself ill to avoid future unpleasantness that I just made up anyway, really springing from the unpleasant thought in this moment of, oh, oh he might not like me anymore. Do you ever notice yourself doing something like that? Actually creating so much more difficulty in the process And if we just said, oh, yeah, right, this is how it is. Both with fear and aversion, when we are lost in it, not just its presence, but when its presence is guiding our judgments, 
It's not such a good guide. We don't make such good judgments. We don't really, because we're not connecting with what's actually happening. That's the way it functions. And so our judgments are distorted. Our perceptions are distorted. I think last year I I read this sutta from the Buddha where he talks about the two darts. Some of you remember that, the two arrows. He's saying, what's the difference between, this is where he comes in again with the untaught, ordinary worldling, which is us, and uh, a fully awakened being. And he's saying, what's the difference between them? They both experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Do you remember that? Awakened beings also experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. It's the same. So he says, what's the difference? I just want to make sure I get it right. He says, when an unawakened person experiences an unpleasant bodily feeling, for example, he worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It's as if a man were pierced by a dart, and following the first piercing, he is hit by a second dart. In fact, we ourselves shoot the second dart at ourselves. So he experiences feelings caused by two darts. So we have an unpleasant sensation or an unpleasant emotion, and then we shoot at ourselves the dart of we're bad, this shouldn't be happening, I hate it, I want to get rid of it, I'm afraid of it, and we're completely lost. And then, he says, for one who has the second dart, you get in the habit of resisting and resenting that painful feeling. So it's not just the one dart, we really get in the habit of shooting darts at ourselves whenever there's an unpleasant feeling. He doesn't stop here. And then, since the only escape an unawakened person knows from, uh, from painful feelings is to go out and look for pleasant sense experience. So then, besides resenting the unpleasant, we have to go out and look for the pleasant, and we get caught in this cycle forever until we stop and just look at that first painful feeling, which is what an awakened person does. He is, if a man is pierced by a dart, but was not hit by a second dart following the first one. So an awakened person, when touched by a painful feeling, he experiences one single feeling. That's all. It's like when Jack was quoting Sansanin, you absolutely believe your eyes and ears. It's just what it is, a painful feeling, an unpleasant sound, a scary memory. This can really escalate this tendency to judge ourselves for experiencing dukkha, for experiencing suffering, and to get lost in the judgment, the second dart, rather than being able to come back to the actual experience. So I just want to give again another example from my life because how it can be more complicated than just an unpleasant sound. About 10 years ago, I started experiencing a lot of physical symptoms of a particular condition. Well, I didn't know I'd had it. I had it then. But they include a lot of physical pain and kind of stiffening of the joints and the skin and 
Um, by the time it was diagnosed, it was a condition that one of these things they know nothing about, you know, that either could kill you or stay like it is or get better, and who knows why you get it and who knows what makes it better, right? So the whole field is open for projection. So it took me a long time to realize that what went on in the period of about a year or so, of first beginning to experience all these um, escalating conditions, the normal thing, you know, pain, limitations, fear of the future, a sense of self-judging. And I could pretty well watch my mind, the fear of the future, and say, okay, I don't know what's happening. Come back to here. I was so grateful for my practice for that. But the underlying self-judgment that it was happening at all slipped by. I really didn't notice that for a long time. And that sense of feeling betrayed somehow by my body. So rather than feeling connected and compassion for the body, it's really this sense of, well, you think, you know, you betrayed me. And on an even subtler level, betrayed by my mind, because if, this kind of new age belief, that if you're truly spiritual and all your thoughts are correct, you can cure any illness. You know how that kind of sometimes seeps into the culture? It's true, a lot of our emotions and our physical experience are connected. I'm not saying they're not. But if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then any great spiritual master would never die, right? Because they were completely spiritual and your body would never break down or get disease. But I didn't notice that for a while. And so what I realized when I finally saw this happening is the physical sensations itself were unpleasant, but not unbearable. I wasn't in agony. But in meeting those sensations, when I met them unconsciously, they would serve as a, like a reminder or actually reinforce this sense of you know, worthlessness, of being a spiritual failure, of that my body had betrayed me, that I was no good and stuff. And so since it was not only that, that was the second dart. The first dart, the physical sensations were unpleasant but quite workable. The second dart was so much more unpleasant that you don't even want to feel it so I realized after a while, I was completely out of touch with my body. It's like I was walking around about 10 feet away from my body, because if I felt the sensations, then I would have to feel all the, uh, along with it, all the sense of worthlessness and failure. So we just check out all together. And the aversion and the fear just grows and grows and becomes the worldview. And it, what actually changes a combination I was, uh, of doing, uh, of practice, two aspects of practice that I think are very helpful with fear and aversion, which is the direct connection with the sensations itself and metta compassion to them. I was actually doing a Tibetan healing practice. This old Tibetan Lama, he must have been in his 80s, just showed up at IMS one day, came back from the store or whatever, and some friend had brought him along. He was one of these great guys who just beamed, you know, just seemed filled with light, didn't speak English. But I think it was Sharon went over and told him, oh, Carol's going through all this stuff. Could you do some blessings? So, you know, who knows what he did? He mumbled some things and bonked me on the head and, and said, okay, say this Tibetan mantra. It's a healing mantra. It's in Tibetan. I have no idea what it means. Some just short two lines. And do a healing visualization. So I was teaching the three-month course, and I'd sit there and, we'd give the Vipassana instruction, and I'd be sitting here going back and see, back and see, and, you know, and doing my healing mantra. And I started at first thinking, you know, this is going to cure me. This is going to make everything okay. This is going to get rid of it all. 
That's usually our idea of going into the difficulty, right? That's not going into the difficulty. That's more aversion. But you start out that way. And what, what actually the effect of doing this practice was that it brought my attention fully into meeting the physical experience. So I was present with the unpleasant sensations, actually, for the first time in a long time. I met him with kind attention. And kind attention just cuts through all that second dart judgment business. It's just what it is. And then I saw, oh, instead of taking it so personally, I said, oh, this poor body, you know, it's hurting. This is hard for it. And so I've been hating it when actually it's suffering. And it's really a sense of compassion, fairly impersonal, that again leads into a deeper connection. And in that connection with the source of the difficulty, the other stuff really went maybe not completely, but almost completely away. And it really, none of that other self-judging or I did something wrong or my body's betrayed me or any of that, I really can say, since then I've, I've hardly ever had a thought like that. And I'm also, I mean, who knows why things reverse, so I'm not in that state that I was then. I mean, physically I feel fine, so I'm not in pain or anything like that, so don't carry that. But... Um, And you never know why, but I saw that once I was in touch with what was happening, the extra darts fell away, I also could make much wiser decisions about how to respond. Because as you know, there's a hundred million possibilities when nobody knows, everybody knows. You know, everybody you know will come up, try this, eat this, do that, try that. It's like, oh my God. So you can actually make intelligent, wise discrimination when we're not lost in fear and aversion. So seeing this cycle of the first dart and the second dart, recognizing the second dart, ah, I don't have to do this. But the only way not to do it is to come fully into that first painful feeling. This deep connectedness, diving into the wave, this is the point of liberating understanding. You don't do it once. I know this is what we'd like. We do it once. We have liberating understanding, and it's done forever. Sorry. I used to think that for years. But see, that's actually not a helpful thing to think because since I'm assuming nobody in this room has had that moment where it's totally liberating understanding and you haven't had any moment of greed, hatred, or delusion since then, I'm assuming it's a projection that no one's had that. That's actually a very self-defeating way to hold the idea of liberation because it's always somewhere out there. The fact is there can be hundreds, thousands, millions of moments of touching this self-liberating understanding where you dive into the wave and meet it just as it is. And in that we can discover the sure heart's release, the place of peace, the place of the vastness of who we really are. And your knee still hurts. And that disgusting noise is still going on. And your back is still paining you. And the heater still makes a heck of a racket. It doesn't matter. And the thing is, that moment is just that moment. Again, in the next moment, we have to be just as awake, just as present. And when we're not, it's okay. Because then there's the next moment, where there's again this opportunity, no matter what's arising, to practice diving into the wave instead of getting lost in fear and denial and hating our aversion. Mark Epstein says, it's our fear of experiencing ourselves directly that creates suffering. 
It's our fear of experiencing ourselves directly. It's not the painful thing itself. Our practice is to learn how to experience ourselves directly, and often that includes aversion. So I just very quickly want to list a couple of the things I've mentioned, but that really help you to be present within fear and aversion when they're happening, rather than just getting in our habits of reaction to them. The first is what I've mostly talked about, mindfulness, the meeting it directly, feeling the aversion, feeling the fear, noticing, if you can, coming right to the sense impression that's eliciting the aversive reaction. Or, if it's really big, just doing stomping meditation, but feeling the aversion, the anger, the fear, rather than keeping it going through feeding into the thoughts. The thoughts about it, the story, are there. They're part of it. But let your attention be with the experience itself. Or, when it's this kind of flashes of negativity and fear going on, and you can't actually figure out why, to open up and see if there's some subtle background, unpleasant experience happening, like being tired or your sweatshirt's too tight. Something that you don't notice, but that's coloring your whole day. (coughs) A sense of humor also helps a lot, a lot. Sometimes either anger, rage, or fear can come up so strongly way beyond even stomping meditation, where you really feel overwhelmed. You can't quite bring mindfulness to it because it just hits that kind of residue and cycles more and more that even coming back to feeling your body just shoots you back into the cycle of pain and fear and aversion. Then it's very helpful to bring up what Thich Nhat Hanh calls seeds of joy. Consciously balance your perception. It's wonderful here with the desert because you can go out and just look at the space. That really helps me not to take whatever's happening so seriously. It's just so vast. What difference does my little concern make? Or Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the overwhelming suffering in the Vietnamese War and how he would tell the workers to consciously just do something as minor as go smell the herbs at night, to go out in the field and just be with nature. That doesn't deny the suffering and the pain, but it takes, it broadens our perception. It takes our mind from just being in this loop of aversion and fear and turns it elsewhere, and this really helps to balance the awareness. Then you can come back and sort of see what's what. Or moving the body, like walking fast or running, sometimes aversion and fear. We have a big story about it, but you can experience it as simply energy. And once um, I woke up just in this wave of fear, and I spent the day psychologizing this and that. I mean, I didn't get any good reason for it. And I was visiting my sister, and she dragged me to the gym, which is not something I normally do. And I was just sitting on the exercise bike, you know, bored, exercise, 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 watching fear, fear, exercise, exercise. And I suddenly noticed that without any story or any, you know, big psychological understanding, the energy I was calling fear just broke up and moved out. I thought, that's really interesting. I could just go ride an exercise bike instead of, you know, years of therapy once in a while. (laughs) Not always. Sometimes it's really helpful to know why. But sometimes it really doesn't matter. It can just move out. We don't have to build so much me around it. Metta practice, 
compassion practice. Not as we often think, oh, I don't want to feel anger, so let me do metta. You know, I hate this person, may they be happy. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. When you do metta for like a long period, you find yourself saying stuff like that. I would find myself saying, may you be filled with suffering. (laughs) Time to back off and see what's going on here. What metta actually does is help us connect, believe it or not. It doesn't override the fear and aversion. What it does is bring us back into connection with the fearful or aversive thing. And that's, again, we're back in the place of wholeness. We're back in the place of integrity. Our separation, our dream of separation is broken. We're back in connectedness. That's really what metta practice does. It lets us see the unity that we already are. It's not just, you know, some kind of thought control, although it seems like it. And the last thing is patience, which is actually an aspect of metta. The willingness to just keep coming back over and over to meet what's happening as best we can, seeing there's still aversion, just be patient with meeting that. This is a huge, huge aspect of practice. I don't think we're real good with it in this culture. I don't really think patience is a virtue that has a lot of uh, support in a way. I mean, you know, like you make a long-distance call here, it rings three times, and the mechanical voice comes on and says, well, they're not answering. I think, give them a chance, you know? It's just so in the culture. Patience is an aspect of metta. It's what helps us connect. So just to close, I'll say to a story of a man I met at a retreat who told me that for years, 10 years of therapy he'd been doing because he was so filled with rage and anger. He held on to every slight. He had so much judgment, so much anger, so much negativity. And he said the 10 years of therapy, and I don't mean to be saying therapy isn't helpful. It can be very helpful. I just realized it could sound like that. He said it didn't really quite touch the roots of it. And then he got stomach cancer. And he was telling me this. He still had the stomach cancer. And in that, the kind of difficult situation that we're faced with when we finally can't deny it anymore, we can't suppress it, we can't fix it, when we're up against the wall and we have to open into it. I don't know why we wait till we're up against the wall, our heads hitting the bricks, but we do before we let go a lot of the time. So when he was faced with his stomach cancer, he saw, oh my gosh, This is where I hold all that rage, all that anger, all these years. Anytime anything unpleasant happens, that's where I hold a grudge. Only one more line. (laughs) He said, well, it's so interesting now that he couldn't hold it. He didn't. It just didn't stick. Difficult things were come, and he was right there, and there was just no residue. It didn't stick, because he wasn't afraid of it anymore. So I wish for all of us that we don't have to, we don't have to wait till that point in our lives. We don't have to be up against the wall. That we can understand the reactions of aversion and fear and anger. We don't have to be afraid of them. And when we can understand them, then we really understand the way that being caught in them obstructs our freedom. It's not the unpleasant experience itself. This is really available to us 
and maybe 50% of the moments when you have an unpleasant experience. The other times, when there's pleasant or neutral, we have other opportunities to see through the craving. But really, any unpleasant experience that arises the rest of the night and tomorrow, think of it as a place to practice freedom. We can be really happy (laughs) that these things arise. I'm only kidding a little bit. Okay, let's give you a quietly a minute. <laughs>